Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. One. What is up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of Draft Season on Turn on the Jets Digital. I am your moderator, D.A. Osario. Uh, joined as always by the dynamic duo, the Legion of Boom, the ultimate warriors, James Coons and Joseph Bellick. And the reason I'm calling them that is because understand that loving the New York Jets is the ultimate war. And we are hoping that our faith is rewarded this, this off season. Fellas, how are you doing as we are now entering the second week of 2021, which seems to just be 2020 with bangs. <laughs> how are you guys feeling? Joe, how are you doing, man? I'm doing great, Dalvin. James, you? How are you feeling? Doing well, doing well. All right, so we can unequivocally say that the Jets will not be hiring uh, anybody that any of us are unhappy with because, as we know, they are knee-deep in head coaching interviews. And I think it's safe to say, I think I can speak for all of us, where they haven't listed anybody that's a little too crazy, right? Like, everybody has kind of been, you know, from, you know, you kind of react like, oh, it's okay to (coughs) – you know, oh, that's a really good person that they could hire. Nobody's pissed us off yet. Um, but there's still time to interview Bill O'Brien. There's still time to interview Bill O'Brien and really tick us off here. Uh, there's also still time for Deshaun Watson to be traded to the Miami Dolphins, but we'll talk a little bit more about that as we go. Uh, you guys know the format, seven-round seven round format based off the NFL draft. Let's jump right in. As you guys know, first round is usually we grade the mock. Um, and this week we are grading a mock that dropped four days ago. Uh, and we're going to look at what this uh, writer said that the New York Jets should do with the Seattle Seahawks pick. Um, and I want to start by saying this, that we are recording this after the Seattle Seahawks got bounced out of the out of the playoffs by the Los Angeles Rams and an inspired performance by the Los Angeles Rams defense. Uh, so this pick, as you guys know, as of right now, it is pick 24. If the Steelers lose, that pick goes to 23. Uh, And the highest that that pick can be is 22. But for the mock draft purposes, they had them picking in the later first round. I think they also assumed that the Seahawks would be better off. They would would not be bouncing the first round. So, Joe, I will start with you. Tell me, what did you think of the direction? (coughs) What did you think of the prospect that was taken with the Seahawks pick uh, in this mock draft that we're reviewing now? Yeah, that one, I like this pick. Creed Humphrey, I mean, especially with the right coaching staff and given McGovern's struggles, it makes sense, especially since McGovern could easily slide to guard. Now, my, my only reservation is matching up a rookie center with a rookie quarterback, but I feel like Creed can handle that role. His communication skills, from what I can tell, are pro-ready. He's good at calling out blitzes, identifying defensive fronts, and setting protections, and that's exactly what you want to see from your center. Not to mention Creed is a super tough, nasty player and solid finisher. I mean, this guy looks to put defenders in the dirt along with their pride. He's pretty much a tank with legs, but 
you know, he's not just a mauler. Um, his technique is efficient too. Um, he displays good use of hands and footwork in both run and pass blocking and does a really nice job of mirroring, controlling, and steering defensive linemen. I love his strong anchor too. The way he's able to snap his hips into his bridge, lift and hold ground is impressive. Now, um, he's not a great athlete, but he is scheme diverse and can handle his own run scheme well. But I think his strength as a drive blocker, down blocker, and his strong push at the point of attack would be better utilized in a system with a little more gap and power concepts. So say the Jets hire uh, Brian Dable. You know, I'd give this pick more of a B plus to an A minus. If they hire a coach like an Arthur Smith or a Robert Sala, I'd probably give it more of a solid B. But in the end, the thought of Becton and Creed being the new version of Mangold and DeBrick is really appealing. And again, you know what? I'm, I'm pretty into this selection. I don't know if I would select him now in this particular spot, given that we're going to be selecting a little higher. But Creed Humphrey is a really nice prospect. Love this guy. Yeah, I agree. And I think I think I, to your point, because you mentioned, you know, starting a rookie center with a rookie quarterback. I, one of the things I do like about Humphrey is that he could just play guard. He could play guard right next to Beckton, Right. And I think and I think you have those two on the left side of the offensive line. Um, and then when you move on from McGovern, maybe you move Humphrey back over to center. Or if you signed a big uh, big time guard, then maybe you move McGovern to the other guard slot. Humphrey at center, and then maybe somebody like Joe Tooney or Brandon Scherf at the guard position. A lot of options for the Jets with this pick. And as we know, in every draft, there's always a guy that falls, right? And there's always a a guy that falls, and there's always a guy that rises. And Humphrey's a guy that, even when we started this, and we're now six episodes in, Creed Humphrey wasn't in a lot of first round, a lot of first round mocks. And then we're starting to see kind of this course correction as we're going, where he's being picked towards the end of round one. James, what are your, what, how, what grade did you give the, uh, this selection? And with who was still left on the board, we see Travis Etienne, which I know you're, you're anti running back round one, right? But he he got picked right after, right after this pick. Uh, would you have maybe gone in a different direction based on players that were around there? Or did you like this pick? I think this pick makes a lot of sense. I was recently listening to Joe Douglas talk on the Michael K show, and he reiterated something that he said many times before, which is that he believes that teams are built through the offensive line and the defensive line in the draft. And this pick is in alignment with that philosophy. Um, Humphrey's big for a center. He's 6'5", 315, and could perhaps play guard while we're still locked into this Connor McGovern contract. Um, I definitely would like this pick if the Jets did not sign a premium uh, interior offensive lineman like Thune or Scherf. Um, but if they were to sign Thune or Scherf, I would probably prefer investing this pick in edge, wide receiver, or corner, depending on the scheme uh, and the head coach that we hire. But overall, um, I do like this pick. I would give it a B plus. Um, and I think Joe did a good job sort of outlining all of the, re- all the aspects of him as a player that, that make him a desirable pick here. Yeah, and I think I think you both raised really good points just about the head coaches, and that's actually a perfect transition to round two. Uh, we've now the Jets have now interviewed nine coordinators. Well, nine candidates. Uh, Marvin Lewis, they've also interviewed. They're not going to interview Matt Campbell from Iowa State, who we found out last night, according to Bruce Feldman, turned them down. Which I mean, I think. I don't think any of us are overly surprised by that, right? Matt Campbell seems like a guy that's just never going to leave Iowa State. And a lot of people say that Ames is the East Rutherford of Iowa. So I think, you know, I think he's in good shape there. Uh, but let's look at the guys that they've, that they've already interviewed, right? And they have three more interviews scheduled by – they have three more interviews scheduled the day that we're recording this. By the time you guys would have heard this, I firmly believe that based off of past timelines, the Jets should, should be at their finalist point by the time – folks hear this episode but 
in any event, they interviewed Joe Brady. It wasn't reported that they that that they had requested permission to to, to interview him. So they inter- they interviewed Joe Brady. Robert Sala, uh, Arthur Smith is about to interview. I think today. Uh, I think he's one of the ones, or he's already interviewed. Uh, you have Eric Bieniemy. You have uh, Aaron Glenn is set to interview, which that was also a surprise, right? Secondary coach from the, from the Saints. Um, just out of the guys that you that you guys have seen, James, I'll start with you. Who's your favorite out of the guys that they've already interviewed? Um, and if there was somebody that, if there was a tandem that you could pair together, because one of the things that I think is going to happen, right, is I think that partly why they've interviewed Aaron Glenn is because I think Aaron Glenn is probably going to be the defensive coordinator with one of their top, one of their top choices for head coaches. I also think that's true of Marvin Lewis. Marvin Lewis is probably going to join the staff. I don't think that Marvin Lewis is a guy that's going to be hired. But James, out of the guys that they've interviewed, who who are your top two or three? And if you could pair your top coach with one of the ones that they've interviewed, who would that be? But let's start with who are your top three. Yeah, sure. So um, I lean towards either college coaches who have been successful or NFL offensive coordinators. Um, and it was, there was a little bit of a change of heart uh, for me recently, but we don't need to get too deep into that. Um, I do think though, that it's worth just contrasting what a college head coach would bring to this process compared to a coordinator. Um, whereas I think a coordinator has very set beliefs on the type of players that are necessary to fit into their offense or defense. Um, I think that would be pretty consistent among every single offensive or defensive coordinator. I don't think there'd be a massive difference in how useful or how adamant they are. I think they all have good ideas about what they need. But I think one of the interesting things that a college coach would bring to this process is their decades long career of dealing with 18 to 22 year olds and being a judge of character. Um, A lot of these college coaches like Matt Campbell, like Pat Fitzgerald um, have, you have kind of come to national prominence by developing under-recruited players who they see something in that the consensus does not recognize or does not weigh very heavily. And I think that's a useful thing to have in the draft room because a lot of the time, you know, Joe Douglas talks about his emphasis on being a good person, being a leader, um, and bringing in people who have leadership experience. Um, I think college coaches are ideal judges of character um, in that respect. So I would say those are the, the ways in which coordinators and then college coaches would contribute to this process. Yeah, and I, I actually like that you pointed this out because I think this is a really good point. And you mentioned your change of heart, which one of the things that I, I think I've always appreciated about you is that you're willing as you're presented with more information to you know either adjust your thinking and what have you. But I think one of the things that you mentioned, and this, and we look, we have to look no further than the Seattle Seahawks. Pete Carroll went to USC, then came to Seattle, and having him in that room with John Schneider, right, helped their dra- their draft record tremendously because these were kids that he knew how to reach, right? So again, we're talking about Richard Sherman was a fifth round pick, Russell Wilson was a third round pick. They weren't just hitting on these top 30 to 60 picks. And you have a guy who's familiar with these guys from playing with, from coaching against them at the collegiate level. Um, Pat Fitzgerald is a guy that I think, you know, and you, you said this, and I think it's a really good point. I think any interview he takes this year is just preparation for him to replace Matt Nagy next year. I think that Pat Fitzgerald is not a guy that's going to leave the Midwest to go out West or to go, you know, to a team like the Giants, for example, who may be looking to clean house next year. Um, but I think, it's really interesting because the one coach, the one college coach that was mentioned initially was Dan Mullen from Florida. He was the one that was mentioned initially. And he's a guy that, again, he has some NFL ties. He has some NFL relations, but he's made his bread and butter rebuilding this Florida team, right? Rebuilding this Florida program. Joe, I'm going to flip it to you. What coordinators out of the ones that they've interviewed already do you really, really like uh, that 
maybe you didn't think of before, right? Like, because I'll, I'll tell you the truth. When I saw Aaron Glenn's name, I was like, wow, that's somebody that I absolutely did not think they would interview. Um, and and I, I'm surprised. That, I'm surprised, but I'm also glad that Joe Douglas isn't just following guys that I think he should interview. Uh, but out of the coordinators they've interviewed, who who are you who are you most high on as we enter what looks to be the second phase of this uh, head coaching search? Well, I think that Brian Dable would probably be the best asset in a war room for for all the reasons James mentioned last week. He he understands how to build around a player's strengths, and I think that being able to identify the strengths and weaknesses in people is key to the evaluation process. You know, when I was at the scouting academy, we're mostly taught to identify what a player can do as opposed to what they can't do. It's so easy to tear a player apart, but much more difficult to understand where their value lies and how they can be utilized. So a coach like Dable, who has the ability to identify and build around a player's strengths, is somebody I think would be really invaluable to the draft, to the drafting and evaluation process. So for me, he's really he's at the top of my list for multiple reasons, including this one. Yeah. And I think one of the things that came out yesterday, you know, as, as well, by the time you guys hear this, this will be Wednesday, but in the bills uh, playoff matchup versus the Colts, like that was a really good matchup between Dabo and Everfliss, right? Like just, I mean, it was a chess matchup for them. Right. And one of the things that we saw, and this was, you know, Josh Allen on his way to throw for 340 yards, two touchdowns and earn his first playoff victory. That's not the Josh Allen that played against Houston last year in the playoffs. Right. And so, as you've seen the maturation of Josh Allen, right? I think it's I think it's of note that that maturation started before they got Stephon Diggs, right? Like Brian Dable is sing. I think Brian Dable deserves eighty percent of the credit for how Josh Allen has turned into a franchise quarterback. And you saw it last. You saw it yes uh, on the first in the wildcard round against a very good Colts defense. Against a Colts defense that again is loaded with playmakers at all three levels is very well coached. They do not beat themselves right. And Josh Allen threw for almost four hundred yards in a playoff game. And if you had told me that that would have happened after we was all versus Houston last year, I wouldn't have believed you. Um, I think for me, I think when I, when I look at the head coaches, I'm really glad that Eric B got an interview. I, I think that that's something that I'm, I, I was hopeful would happen. I'm really glad Joe Brady got an interview. Um, and I'm also really glad that Robert Sala got an interview and, and we've talked about this a lot, right? Uh, perception is in the reality is perception to a lot of people, right? There were reports that Robert Sala tanked his Detroit interview that he just did terrible in his Detroit interview, right? But then it comes out that he did really well in his in like in, in the interview that he had that he had with the Falcons, right? And and I think when we see a lot of these guys and we hear those stories, right, about guys that just maybe didn't do really well or guys that weren't fits here, all it takes is one, right? And I think with Joe Douglas, I think that that notion of uh, of chemistry and and does he feel like he can build this team back? with this head coach. I think that's going to be key. Brian Dable is a guy they talk a lot about. He's earmarked for the Chargers because of his relationship with Tom Telesco, right? But that goes to show you just how much that comfortability plays a role in it. Um, so it's going to be interesting because by the time you guys hear this, we should be up to, we should know who the finalists are for the head coaching position. Let's switch gears and go straight to the defensive line because I would be shocked if the New York Jets added in a, a defensive lineman in, in, in the in the NFL draft. Uh, Quinn and Williams took that next step this year, right? And and by all accounts, you know, next year should be his big All Pro year. Um, John Franklin Myers played really really well. Nathan Shepard, you know, got busted for Royd, so you know there there is that. <laughs> um, but the Jets' defensive line is one of a position of strength. I will start with you. In this draft class, so every time I've done a mock, I usually end up adding one, at least one player on the defensive line. Uh, and it's an interior defensive line because I do think that any, I think the Jets should transition to a 4-3 as is. And I think that it doesn't hurt to have more bodies on the defensive, on the defensive line. Who are some guys that Jet fans should maybe pay attention to in this draft process that 
nobody's thinking of because they think we're all set at defensive line. Did you say me, Dalvin? Yeah, you, Joe. Oh, I didn't. I actually didn't hear my name. Um, <laughs> let's talk a little bit about edge. You know, I think uh, interior defensive line. I told you I'm probably going to be taking a vacation of uh, that day when we, we discuss those particular players because I have almost no interest at all. If um, Joe wants to find one in the later rounds, that'd be cool. Like, you know, we did find Foley in the sixth at some point. We've had undrafted free agents like Damon Harris. Um, so that's that's the kind of direction I'd like to see them go. As far as edge, I think it's a fairly deep class, and it looks like there will be some solid player, players available in the first or early second that could be really tempting. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And we've seen Joe Douglas be part of two drafts now where he went edge in the first round, you know, Leonard Floyd with the Bears and Derek Barnett with Philly. So it's a big time possibility. You know, some names that um, I like in that range with the Seattle pick or the second rounder, Jalen Phillips, uh, a James favorite, a versatile edge can play end in a 4-3 or outside linebacker in a 3-4. Uh, Joseph Asai, another guy who could line up with his hand in the ground or standing up. Patrick Jones, a guy I love, uh, especially if they switch to a 4-3 base, which I think would be interesting. And it sees Ajulari, that is, uh, seems to be a Jets uh, a Twitter favorite. Uh, but for me personally, you know, with all the needs on offense and potentially a new quarterback, I'd like to see him address the position um, anywhere from round three and on, which isn't out of the question from, from my perspective. You know, we've seen Joe Douglas's former team, the Ravens, find uh, success in the later rounds of players like Zadarius Smith and, and Matt Judon. And even a fourth round pick Joe made in Philly in 2018, Josh Sweat, is now showing some signs of life with six sacks this season. So... Um, and I think he actually tried to replicate that strategy last year with Zuniga in the third round. And I know Zuniga hasn't shown much, much life so far, but he still has time to develop. You know, both Zadarius Smith and Matt Judon, you know, weren't household names immediately either. Listen, you know, I, I, I know Jets fandom would love a stud, a stud edge, but unless Douglas secures player like Joe Tooney or Allen Robinson a free agency, I'd rather take the latter approach and hope he finds a diamond in the rough later in the draft. You know, if... Uh, a player like Hamilcar Rashid fell. You know, he, he's somebody I would strongly consider at the top of the third. And I think he's actually going to rise up board so we get closer to the draft. Other players to look at from rounds like three to five, you know, from the third to fifth rounds, Rashad Weaver, a uh, 4-3 end from Pitt. Uh, Shaka Tony, who could play that kind of Leo role in a defense. And, and Joe Tryon, who uh, a 3-4 linebacker, in my opinion, or a situational 4-3 edge rusher, who's, who's really good at getting to the quarterback on stunts are some guys to really watch out for, depending, obviously, on who the next the defensive coordinator is. Yeah, and I, I, I mentioned two of my favorites, Shaka Tony and Patrick Jones, who I think 
I think it's in, it's interesting, right? Because as we've seen, uh, you know, you want scheme versatility on defense, right? Like you want to be able to move, you know, Belichick moves it from a 5-2 to a 4-3, maybe a 4-4, right? Like you see a lot of more 4-4 looks from, from him. And you see that in Miami too. Brian Flores is good at that, right? Like when they signed Emmanuel Ogba, he didn't just put his hand in the dirt. They had him standing up a lot, right? And you want to see some of that. And I think there's a lot of guys, Joe, that you mentioned in this draft class that I think really have that kind of versatility where they don't necessarily only have to play with their hand in the dirt. What and, and and I'll go to James in a second, but to you, who what do you think an edge rusher on this defense? How does th- how does that unlock Quinn and Williams's potential? Like just because I mean we saw him take that step this year, and that's with no edge presence. How do you how do you feel having an edge presence and a and a really good edge rusher on this team? How would that unlock Quinn and Williams's potential next year? Oh, I think it would unleash a beast. You know, I think a good team to look at is the Jags when they had Kalis Campbell there on the interior and what his presence did for uh, Nagakwe. And I think um, a similar thing could happen exactly. Like, I, I actually think that Quinn will help actually vice versa, will help mm-hmm. unleash, unleash the edge. Mm-hmm. And if you get a good edge in there with guys like that the Jets have on the interior, this defensive line could be really, really special. Yeah, I agree. And one of the things that Calais Campbell did too, he also made Josh Allen's transition to the Jags much simpler, right? And we kind of saw him take a little step back statistically this year because there was no Calais Campbell, right? So I, I agree. I think Quinnen Williams, and that's why I wouldn't rule out somebody like a Matt Judon at, at edge just because of familiarity for Joe Douglas. And, you know, as James and I, jo- we joke about this a lot, he only gets tight ends versus sacks because that's, that's who he schemed against. He only gets sacks against tight ends. James, what did you think? How did you think the Jets defensive line did this year? We talked a lot about Quinnen, but... John Franklin Myers, I think, played really, really well this year. Um, Foley also played really, really well this year. What, what did you think of the group as a whole? Yeah, I mean, my qualitative assessment was that it was above average against the run and probably below average against the pass, um, which is understandable. We didn't really have the personnel to rush for and really get home consistently. Um, and yeah, I think a large part of that is due to the fact that we don't really have a good edge rusher. Um, and one of the key factors that Joe mentioned is whether we have a four, three or a three, four base defense. And just to kind of back up and, uh, you know, I don't assume everybody like knows what that is. Um, in a four, three defense, you have four defensive linemen, um, and three linebackers and in the three, four defense, you have three defensive linemen and four linebackers. And then the main, like, strategic difference is that in a 4-3 you're getting your pass rush from the defensive line whereas in a 3-4 you rely on linebackers in addition to the three down linemen to get a pass rush um and i would say that schematic difference will also impact what type of edge rushers we take i do think we're almost a lock to take one like I know we can't read into Joe Douglas press conferences a ton but literally every single press conference he talks about how teams are built at the line of scrimmage through the offensive and defensive lines. You know, it's almost like he's giving us a signal here, guys. I mean, I think we're very likely to take one in the early second or late first. Um, And if we have a three, four, we may take a lighter edge rusher, um, maybe like a Hamilcar Rashid. Um, And if we have a four, three, I think we may take, um, you know, somebody who spends a lot of their time with in a three point stance with their hands in the dirt, like a Jalen Phillips or something like that. Um, so I'd say that's those are my thoughts on the D line and the schematic differences and the impact that could have on drafting. 
Yeah, and 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 I, I I pose this question to both of you because I think it's a, I think it's a very interesting thing, right? When we've seen the three four became the three four was what became, for lack of a better word, in vogue after the cover two was the big defense that a lot of teams were playing in the early two thousands, right? The Bucks won a Super Bowl playing all cover two, right? But again, you can play a cover two like that if you have Derek Brooks and Warren Sapp in your front seven, right? It becomes easier to trust that your front seven is going to get pressure. Um, when we look at guys like Marvin Lewis being mentioned that you know they've been interviewed and potentially joining a staff if that's the route that they go. Marvin Lewis is also another guy. He's a disciple of that three, four Baltimore Ravens defense. Right. I think, I think James, you make a really good point and And I want to get your take on this. When we look at this jets team, as it's currently constructed, the jets defense, the corners that they have right now, how, and James, I think you and I share the same sentiment. How bad would a cover two be for this, for this defense, because, because that's what Eberflus primarily uh, coaches in Indianapolis, right. Is the cover two. And right now I don't think one, I think the cover two is a relic of a, of a, of a different game. The cover two is not, I don't think you can play a cover two winning football in this NFL. Um, But what do you guys think in terms of just how the defense is constructed right now? Uh, Is it better suited for a three, four right now? And is there one player available either in free agency or the draft that would make you change your mind in terms of what scheme we should go to Joe, I'll throw it to you. And then James, feel free to chime in. Um, you know, it's hard to say, you know, who are they going to retain? Right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, But I I think as presently constructed, I mean, it seems like they might be just one really dominant edge rusher away from being a really good four, three uh, defensive team. That's You know, if they drafted like a, a Patrick Jones, I think that, he would match up really well with the interior. You got guys like Foley and Q and now Patrick Jones over there. And I'm sure uh, Franklin Myers, maybe he could be the, the edge setter on that yeah. other side. I think he has that skill set. So I think that going 4-3 is based on what I, how I see, you know, this team constructed. And you have now you have Mosley coming back to be that play that middle linebacker role. Yeah. So that's really, I'd love to see them go in that direction. I think that would be really the, the best uh, course of action. And, you know, a guy like, Maybe people don't want to hear this Dan Quinn coming in and kind of, you know, installing that kind of like old school Seahawks defense yeah. could be really appealing. So I, I think that's that definitely a direction I'd yeah. love to see. And I love that you mentioned CJ Mosley returning because I think CJ Mosley is almost forgotten, right? Like folks forget that when he played before he got hurt, he was the Jets best defensive player, right? And you add him, who's a guy that can play in a 4-3 or 3-4. And I like that you mentioned Dan Quinn because Dan Quinn is a guy, again, it's that cover 3-4-3, right, that he ran in Seattle. Again, with C.J. Mosley playing that Bobby Wagner role, it's not the worst thing in the world. James, what? because I like that Joe mentioned C.J. Mosley because it's something that I've been thinking about a lot. C.J. Mosley, aside from going to Applebee's during the pandemic, hasn't really been seen, right? Nobody knows, nobody knows where he's been. But just this Jets defense right now, they get C.J. Mosley back. I think, it's safe. I think we're hoping that they're going to retain Marcus May. But they have – the cornerback room is barren. There is nothing there other than Bryce Hall, right? Um, just – do you agree with Joe that one edge rusher, if they can get this dynamic edge rusher in the top of the draft or even in free agency, say they sign somebody, right? Are they that close to being a very good defense? Do you, do you agree with that assessment? Um, a very good de- – I think that's a very high bar. Um, yeah. So I guess my thoughts are, yeah, I think if we were to get a good edge rusher, we would have – um, probably like a pass rush in between like 10 to 15 in the NFL, but we, the corners need a lot of work. And I think part of the question here is like, what type of scheme do we bring in on defense? If we were to hire Wink Marndale, who has yet to get an interview, according right. to public information, right. from my understanding, that is a predominantly like that, that type of pass rush is mainly like zone blitzes or heavy man-to-man coverage mm-hmm. and cover one. 
um, where they really rely on their defensive backs um, to buy time for that pass rush. Whereas Eberflus, on the other hand, um, or Robert Sala, on the other hand, um, rely mainly on the defensive line and mm-hmm. you know, rush four or rush fewer rushers than a Wink Martindale. And so I think depending on the defensive coordinator, it's going to alter the draft strategy because if we hire Martindale, we're going to have to go out and get corners who can hold up on an island. Whereas if we were to get Eberflus or we were to get Sala, I think the premium would be on getting good defensive linemen and mm-hmm. you know maybe finding some corners in the mid-rounds or in you know the mid in the bargain basement of free agency. So I, I would say that's how I think it affects draft strategy. Yeah. And that's honestly, that's a really good point too, because I think the Ravens are, and, and, and I have one more question on, on this topic and then we'll, and then we'll move on, but the Ravens are the only team in the NFL that has three corners that can play man for, uh, for as long as the, as Wink Martindale asks his corners to play man, right? It's Jimmy Smith, Marcus Peters and Martin and Humphrey. They're the only team in the league that has three, three above average man corners. Right. I wonder, because now I'm thinking back to Joe Douglas's time in Philly, right? They had, they drafted uh, Rasul Douglas, right? They drafted Sidney Jones, right? After he, after he had the really bad injury, but he also drafted Derek Barnett in round one, right? Like he also was part of that front office. I, I wonder if he leans more to what you, what you're saying uh, is, you know, the Eberflus and the Salah where it's, I'm going to trust my front four to get to the quarterback, right? That way I'm not leaving my cornerbacks or not. Is that how he views the team building? And I wonder also, because he also has kind of told us, Joe, you said this, you know, like he said it, in, you both said it. He has, he, we have to read what he's saying in the press conferences, right? He has said he's not going to dictate to his coaching staff who to hire or anything like that. So I, I, but I do wonder how much his own d- desire to build a team this way, because again, he's been on Super Bowl champions, right? The Ravens won a Super Bowl when he was in the front office. The Eagles won a Super Bowl when he was in the front office. When you have success like that, that absolutely impacts your thinking. So it's going to be interesting because like we said, by the time you guys hear this, I firmly believe that we'll know who the finalists are and we should be nearing a decision, I think. I don't think the Jets are going to waste too much time, but they've been incredibly thorough so far. They have three more interviews at the time of this recording. Monday and Tuesday, they're interviewing Aaron Glenn and Matt Eberflus on Monday and Tuesday. That'll take their total up to 14 people interviewed. And that's and those are the ones we know. That, that those are the ones we know, right? Because I because again, J- James, you made a really good point. Wink Martindale hasn't been interviewed, and by all accounts, we think he should be. But you know, we didn't know about Joe Brady either. Um, let's go right into the next round. Joe, tell the Jet fans who is your prospect of the week. Let them know who is the name that they need to get familiar with because I don't want a thing to happen where come draft time, they're like, oh my God, nobody ever talked about this. And then I have to run the tape and show them that we did, just like we did with Justin Fields. I've cashed in all Twitter points on Justin Fields and his performance against Clemson. But Joe, give us your give us your prospect of the week. Um, you know what? I'm going to talk about somebody we already talked about before, Rashawn Slater. I think now that we're picking a little higher, there is – a possibility he, he falls to us. I mean, he has taken a year off. Some people think maybe he's not really suited for that left tackle position. So there is a possibility he he does slip. So let's explore him a little further, right? So what, what makes Slater special? Um, in the NFL, the majority of blocks are one with footwork alone. Being able to put yourself in a proper position to shoot your hands and gain leverage on an opponent is the objective. And that is Rashawn Slater's bread and butter. The way he hits his set points or drops his post foot when an edge rusher attempts to get inside, or the way he seamlessly displaces defenders on the second level and his ability to vary his pass sets from a 45 degree set to a vertical is already pro ready and a testament to his exceptional footwork and his athleticism. Um, You know, most college guys are predictable in their approach off the snap, but Slater has already shown the propensity to adjust his method based on 
defensive alignment or situation. There's this, there's this one play against Chase Young that was a real drop the pen moment for me. Chase exploded off the line, hoping to catch Slater off guard, but Slater matches intensity right off the snap with a quick 45 degree angle set, set, shot his hands, got control of Chase and just pushed him up the arc away from the pocket. And I was just like, wow. I mean, this kid could be special, you know? Um, Slater is just really light on his feet and really the epitome of what experts call a dancing bear. And you know what? I'm not shocked that Daniel Jeremiah and you Dalvin have him as OT1. He's not my OT1, but I can definitely see it. You know, his arms appear to be short. So I'm curious um, how his measurements impact his draft stock, but we can only hope and pray he falls to the Jets. This would be a no brainer pick for them with the Seattle selection. Couldn't agree more. And yes, spoiler alert, I do have Rashawn Slater as my top tackle in the class. I think I so, and it's interesting because you mentioned, you know, just that the 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 reps against Chase Young, but I also think there's a there's a scheme versatility and a position versatility for Rashawn Slater that kind of resembles Tristan Works from last year, who I think he could play tackle, could play inside, right? And I think that in this new age NFL as we continue to move into what I like to call positionless football on offenses where you have four pass catchers instead of just four wide receivers, right? And instead of, you know, pigeonholing guys into left tackle, left guard, center, right guard, right right tackle, I think you're going to see a lot more guys that can kind of move around, right? And I think you're going to see a lot of that as we get more college coaches into, into the NFL too, because you have to change that archaic way of thinking where it's like, oh no, we have to have a six foot five tall receiver on the outside and we have to have a five foot 10 small receiver in the slot. That's not a thing anymore, right? It's not a thing. Um, and I think, Rashawn Slater just if he fell to the Seattle pick, I would run the, the I would run the pickup for Joe Douglas. Like I would. And and I know I've been very adamant, like I'd love to see a wide receiver there, et cetera, et cetera. But he is too good to pass up at that slot. And him and Makai Beckton will protect whatever quarterback you draft. Whatever quarterback you draft, they will protect your quarterback for the for the next 10 years. Uh James, for for you, I want because you you alluded to this earlier. You changed your mind, you changed your opinion on head coaches, and you had a really good point last episode too about how even though there is all this talk about CEO, head coaches, CEO, head coaches, CEO, head coaches, you said it. If you're a good coach, that should be your MO anyway. Like you, you should still view it that way. Um, but let's talk about your change of opinion on head coaches and how that would affect what you think the Jets should do at, 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 with the second pick in the draft. Yeah, for sure. So um, I would say here, I'll explain what part of my philosophy stayed the same and then I'll say what changed. So the part that stayed the same is I would prefer a college coach has been successful. I think that um, is the like ideal of a coach because it's really difficult to do if you've proven that you've been able to turn around multiple programs, you know, like Matt Campbell, or I've been able to do a lot with a little like Pat Fitzgerald. I think that merits being higher than the NFL. Um, I would say where I have changed my view is I used to weigh offensive coordinators and defensive coordinators kind of similarly, solely looking at their leadership ability and how I think they could build a staff. But, and I'm not exactly sure what prompted this change, but I think now I lean more towards offensive coordinators than defensive coordinators because defensive success is more variable on a year to year basis than offensive success. Offensive success is more fun to watch. And I would like to watch a fun team. Um, and in terms of all the candidates, if we hire a defensive head coach, we are likely to have our offensive coordinator poached when Justin Fields or Zach Wilson does well for the first time. And I don't want to have to deal with that or go through with that. And sure, we could say that maybe that head coach is going to have a perfect succession plan where the QB coach will take over and there will be no hiccup. But 
I doubt that. That's very difficult and it takes a lot of foresight. And unless you're planning for that since day one of becoming a head coach, I think it's very difficult to execute. Um, and so the guy I tweeted about last night who I really like among the realistic candidates is Joe Brady. And the reason I like him is that um, I think his offense is modern. I think it is tailored to what a lot of college quarterbacks do well. There are a lot of RPOs. There's uh, you know a good amount of play action. Um, I think that there's... Um, a lot of creativity in that offense, you know, using switch releases to get receivers open. Um, he does a great job of kind of generating separation through scheme. I know one of the critiques of him is that I think statistically, you know, it's a mediocre offense, but considering the fact that Christian McCaffrey was out for most of the year and he doesn't exactly have an incredible quarterback throwing the ball. Um, I think if you watch it, you'd have a hard time saying like qualitatively that this is a bad offense to have. Like I would love to see that offense on a weekly basis. Um, and the other thing is that even though he's young and he has not been on a lot of teams as a coach, he does have very high quality relationships with the teams that he's been on. Aaron Glenn is a rumored potential defensive coordinator for him. Um, the saints are a very nice place to draw position coaches from. Um, as assistants, which is where he worked for a long time. Um, and overall, um, you know, this may, this could be construed as like some sort of reversal on my whole CEO head coach thing, but I don't think it is because no defensive coordinator is a proven CEO. No offensive coordinator is a proven CEO. The only ones who have proven it are former head coaches. And to the extent that we're choosing among unknowns, among these coordinators, I would rather have the unknown that is fun to watch, that is young, that can assemble a good staff and can put its players in a position to succeed. Um, and that's who I think Joe Brady is. So uh, those, those are my thoughts. Joe, what do, what do you what do you think about James's point about uh, Joe Brady? Because I, I so when when the process started, the three that I had at the top of the three that I had at the top of my list were Matt Campbell, Wink Martindale, and Joe Brady. Those are the three. And then Eric Bieniemy, who I didn't think was realistic. I didn't think we would interview him. Um, what do you think about the the idea of Joe Brady as the head coach? And if Joe Brady is the head coach, does that change who you draft at number two? As far as Joe Brady, oh, at number two? Um, no, nah, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm Fields all day, every day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to pull, you know, hopefully Joe Brady can do a Brian Dable and, you know, work around the player's yeah. strengths because that's exactly what yeah. they should do at number two. Fields, for yeah. me, is the clear cut, QB2. Yeah. Um, you know, I like James' point. I, I, I think that I'd like to maybe take credit for what prompted his change in, uh, in philosophy. Maybe me and Meeks, I'm not sure. But yeah. um, I'm, I'm all about, listen, I'm all about, ideally you'd want to see CEO type of coach, but I know someone who can organize the team and put people in the right place and do their jobs and have a pulse on the team in its entirety. Mm -hmm. I get that. But my biggest and legitimate fear is exactly what James said, that one of these coordinators are going to get poached. You know, like mm -hmm. look at Joe Brady. Joe Brady is already getting a head coaching consideration. Uh, you know, where are the Eagles and Wentz since uh, Reich left? Uh, I'm sure the Falcons and Matt Ryan, for that matter, would have rather kept Shanahan over Dan Quinn, too. And again, I'm sure the Bills and Josh Allen are going to miss Brian Dable very much. Plus, yeah. plus the success of play calling coaches as a parent, it's easy to see. Three of the final four teams in the postseason were all run by play calling head coaches in 2019. Chiefs, uh, 49ers. Packers and the fourth team, the Titans, well, they're likely to lose their offensive coordinator too, Arthur Smith, right? Yeah. So, you know, there is a lot of noise about this like CEO type of head coach, but I don't think we should discount a play caller with those results just because the last play caller we had failed, right? Now, That's you know what? Point. I wouldn't mind a 
a marriage between the two, you know, bring in an offensive minded coach and have him delegate play calling duties to someone he trusts. Mm-hmm. This way, if he leaves, the system is still in place and, and, the, and the young quarterback isn't left learning a new system and a new language for that matter. You know, kind of like the relationship uh, between Pete Carmichael and Sean Payton, you know, who originally called plays uh, before passing on the responsibility to Carmichael or, or Bruce Arian and, and Byron Leftwich in Tampa Bay. Mm-hmm. You know, the system Leftwich deploys is the one he learned under Arians when they were in uh, Pittsburgh together. So, you know, for me, you know, I think continuity is important, but especially for a young quarterback. And the only way to really ensure that is if you bring in an offensive minded coach who will deploy his system and build around the strengths of their quarterback. So I don't, you know, want to keep bringing this guy's name up, but a guy <laughs> like Joe Brady, but Brian yeah. Dable yeah. is the guy. Who yeah. And I will say, you know, as we wrap up, I think Brian Dable is the coach that a lot of people say Arthur Smith is, to be honest. I, I have, I, I, I have more faith in Brian Dable and his ability to become a head coach, a successful one, than I do with Arthur Smith. And that's just, that's, those are my two cents. I will also say, James, the two coaches that have clearly set up succession plans, Andy Reid, who lost Matt Nagy, Doug Peterson, now has Eric Bieniemy, And if Eric Bieniemy leaves, Mike Kafka is going to become the offensive coordinator. So he's clearly had the foresight. The other one is Sean McDermott, because if they lose Brian Dable, which they will, Ken Dorsey's probably going to be the guy that becomes the play caller on that team. Good coaches will figure that out. Good coaches will figure that out. Guys, thank you so much for joining us for another episode of Draft Season. DA, James, Joe, by the time you guys hear this, hopefully we will know who the Jets head coach is because I really don't want to spend more time talking about it because it's either Joe Brady or Wink Martindale or Eric Bieniemy, I think, or Brian Dayball, if we somehow can sway him from going to California. But I love California, and you couldn't sway me to, 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 to not go there. But thank you guys for tuning in again, and we will see you guys next week.